Revelation chapter 11 this morning, Revelation chapter 11. Uh, apologize, I left my timeline at home, so, you know, it has Joe Biden and Kamala and all that on there for you futurists, um, but I'll, I'll have it out next week. It was a joke, you can breathe, it's okay. Golly. All right. Revelation chapter 11. If you would please stand as we honor the reading of God's word this morning. Chapter 11, starting verse 1. It says this. It says, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told to rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the, outer, the, outside, uh, the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that is symbolically called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents, because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day, and thank you for this text. Uh, Father, thank you for the comfort that it should be, um, and I pray that it would be comforting uh, to us today to know that you have marked and measured your church, and that you will protect your church through many dangers, toils, and snares, and that you will bring us safely home to heaven. I pray today that if anyone in here doesn't know you, that today as the gospel is preached, that you would save them, uh, and I pray for us as church members, as, as believers in this room, that we would be comforted. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're back in Revelation. We'll be there until the end of the year. Just a quick recap. Revelation was written by the apostle. We start back up. Revelation. Okay, no S. All right, I got to correct you if you go, well, we're in Revelations. No, you're in Revelation. All right, so the book of Revelation was written by the Apostle John. It was written around 95 AD while he's in exile on the island of Patmos. And the theme of Revelation, as we've said, very, very simple, very easy to understand. Here's the theme. God wins. That's it. God wins. That the outcome does not hang in the balance, that the end has already been decided. That the world and, and, and everything that goes on right now is not some giant game of paintball between good and evil. No, good's already won. That's the point of the book of Revelation. And it was written to seven churches in Asia Minor who were beginning to come under major persecution for their faith. 
And John's writing to them. And essentially what John's trying to get them to see is this, is that, hey, God hears your prayers. God sees your tears and he has not forgotten you. Look what he's doing. Look how he's orchestrating all things, right? That he's saved you, that he'll sustain you. He tells the churches over and over again to conquer, to endure, to hold fast until Christ comes. And although this book was written to these seven churches, it was written for us, okay? So keep that in mind. It was written to them for us. When we keep that in mind, it'll stop us from making the book mean something to us that it never meant to them, okay? We cannot take this book, wretch it out of context, and make it mean some bizarre, crazy thing to us that it never meant to the people uh, in John's time, all right? And in chapter six, John begins to describe three sets of judgments that'll take place on the earth as we uh, get closer to the time uh, of the, the arrival of our Lord. The three judgment, three sets of judgments are the seal, the trumpet, and the bold judgments that will take place on the earth. Now, some people believe that these judgments have already happened, right? That they believe all these things describe events that happened leading up to the fall of the temple in 70 AD. Others believe in a very strict futuristic interpretation that all these events will occur during seven years known as the Great Tribulation. And honestly, the, the view that Joe and I hold is a mixture of these two, right? These events described happen in the past. They're happening now and they will happen in the future with the return of Christ being the final thing. And the judgments are laid out in three sets of seven. And the term that we used was the term recapitulation. So they're showing the same thing, but from a different point of view. And so what we said is it's like a football game. When you watch a football game, you get different camera angles, right? And every time you see a different camera angle, it's the same game, it's just from a different angle. And that's what happens with the judgment. It's the same game, it's just a different angle, and every time we get a new set of judgments, the, uh, uh, the persecution and the intensity of those judgments gets ratcheted up a little bit, all right? So it's the same thing from a different angle, right? Revelation, and this is really helpful to think about. Here's where people, I think, make a mistake too, is they wanna see Revelation as linear, Right, that it's on this timeline of what's gonna happen next. And Revelation isn't written that way. It's not what happens next, it's what John sees next. Right? The visions, what did John see next? Right? It's not linear. Now, here's what we're gonna talk before I get into the text. Right? Nothing angers people in the church more than the end times. Nothing. Right? I've already got some missing. I know why. Because nothing angers them more than the end times. As I have said at the beginning, we can agree to disagree on the interpretation of this book, but we will not split. Because regardless of how we interpret this book, hear me, the theme is still the same no matter what camp you fall into, all right? God wins and he will preserve his people. He will bring them through many dangers, toils, and snares into the new heavens and the new earth. So if he comes and does that by vacuuming us all out of here before it all gets crazy, he preserved and he protected you and brought you into the new heavens and the new earth, okay? If we live through a period of persecution and he comes back at the end of it, guess what? He brought you through it. It's the same theme, all right? So real quick, all we disagree on in this room is the timeline. Amen? That's all we disagree on. We, ha we agree on the terms. So, so listen, I believe in a rapture. Breathe. 
okay? I just don't believe it's going to be a secret one, right? Where the husband and wife are asleep in bed, you know? She hears a noise, turns her head, he's gone. Right? Y'all remember that song? It was written about Mary and Buford, actually, right? Right? Or maybe you're flying in an airplane and all of a sudden you look over there and the guy's clothes are neatly folded next to you and you're like, what happened? Left his mask there, right? Because he doesn't need that in heaven. Um, I, I just don't believe it's going to be a, a secret rapture. I think our text will show us today the rapture is going to be a very, very visible thing where we're going to look at our enemies and go, I'm gone, man. See you. I believe in a great tribulation. I just think that we're going to have to live through it. We don't get to hit the eject button. I heard an old pastor say this one time. He said, if the apostles didn't escape persecution for their faith and death, what makes you think we're so holy? They were better than we were. Okay? So we agree on the terms. It's just a different timeline. And if you can't say amen to that, and if you get angry, then I would push back and say that your eschatology or your belief in the end is an idol and you need to repent. Because that has become more important to you than the gospel. Right? Now, I don't think anybody in this room is going to leave. I think the temptation for some of you in this room is just to ignore me. And just be like, well, I don't believe him. So anything he says over the next three months, four months, it ain't got nothing good for me. Don't do that. Like, there's so much in this book that you can learn. There's so much in here that you should be encouraged about, right? Because ultimately, the point is this, is that no matter what we go through, the outcome doesn't hang in the balance. God's already won. I have a big feeling that when we get to heaven, none of us are going to be right anyways. And guess what? It ain't going to matter because we're going to be worshiping Jesus. Okay? Real quick, I got a picture. I'm just going to show you because I want to prove my point on something just real fast, all right? This is Dr. R.C. Sproul and Dr. John MacArthur, right? Uh, Two men that couldn't be further apart on issues when it comes to the end times. I mean, could not be. Dr. Sproul died a couple years ago. And after his death, listen to what Dr. MacArthur said about him. He said, what motivated R.C. was his love for the gospel and his zeal for making sure that message was proclaimed without compromise or confusion, all right? I am a pre-millennialist. That's Dr. MacArthur. He's a futurist. He was somewhat fluid in his eschatological opinions, but listen to this. But we agreed on far more than we disagreed, especially when it came to issues like the gospel. And that's exactly how we're to do things. Amen? So let's keep that in mind because we start off on what might be the most controversial chapter in the book. So here we go, all right? Remember, we're looking at this interlude between the sixth and seventh trumpets, all right? There is this parenthetical interlude between the sixth and seventh seal, and there's a parenthetical interlude, a parenthesis, between the sixth and seventh trumpet. And what they do is they're there, and they exist to show us that God on earth is marking and sealing and sectioning off his people, right? So the 144,000, we just said that's a number that represents perfection. It's God's way of saying, listen, I know who my people are. I've counted them. I know exactly who they are, and and I've got them set aside for me. And now you may disagree with me on what the temple and the two witnesses are up front, okay? But, but listen, I want to say this. The main point is still the same no matter how you interpret this chapter. The main point still the same no matter how you interpret it. Listen, God will protect his people against all satanic opposition and they will proclaim the gospel till kingdom comes. One more time. God will protect his people against all satanic opposition and they will proclaim the gospel 
till kingdom comes. That is the point of this chapter. So chapter 11, look at verses one through three. This is John, remember? It's not linear, it's not a timeline, it's what John sees next. So what John sees next in verse one is, I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now, John is a Bible man. And this book is steeped in images that, is, that are drawn from the Old Testament. So John piles these images on and on and on. Like the book is, is almost a, a repurposing of scriptural metaphors. Like there's nothing that's said in, in Revelation that wasn't already said in the Old Testament, okay? That, that's exactly what John's doing. David Strain tells us if we read Revelation correctly, it'll push us to be Bible men and women too. The best guide to understanding the book of Revelation is not the newspapers or the latest reports from Fox News. The best guide to the book is the Bible. And so if you keep that in mind, you, you won't get intimidated by this uh, complex section of the book. Because we could spend weeks on chapter 11 alone. And I just simply want us to see what the chapter is about, right? It's about what the church should expect and what we should do as a church. So John's given a measuring rod and a staff, and he's told to go measure the temple. Now, a lot of futurists believe, and a lot of people will say, that this refers to a literal physical temple that will be rebuilt shortly before the return of Christ. Right? I've been told that my whole life. I remember sitting in Sunday school, my freshman year of high school, and I remember the Sunday school teacher being like, yeah, they've already got all the materials, man. It's just sitting there, right? And any day now, they're gonna go blow up the Dome of the Rock, right? It's gonna be a big explosion. It's gonna be gone. They're gonna rebuild the temple. Jesus is coming back. You probably won't even make it out of high school. And I'm thinking, what? Man, I haven't even had a girlfriend yet, man. I need to like get something. No, don't, you know, don't be telling me that. And I studied Dr. MacArthur's view. I look at him every week because I have great respect for him. And I have great respect for others who hold this view. But I just, I humbly disagree with what's being said here, all right? See, I think what's going on here, because the book works in metaphor and symbols, is that John is symbolically describing the church's mission during the church age. So the church age would be from the ascension of Christ until the return of Christ, right? Until the final persecution and opposition of the beast. So when he says measure and mark off the temple, he's referring to God's church, God's people, we have to be Bible people, and throughout the New Testament, the temple of God is what? First and foremost, it's Jesus Christ. That is the temple of God in the New Testament. He was the true and better temple, all right? He was the ultimate sacrifice. He was the final sacrifice. But secondly, after his ascension, who's the temple? The church, right? Us, Jesus Christ dwells with his people. We are the only temple that God will dwell. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 1 Peter 2, 5, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 through 17, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. 
For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So to measure doesn't mean to physically measure, but it speaks of spiritual preservation from the wrath of God. So this measuring in this chapter is the exact same as the ceiling of the 144,000 in chapter 7. The 144,000, it's God's church. They're perfect, they're numbered, they're marked off. God knows exactly who they are. And so as John's writing this, remember, can't make it mean something to us, it didn't mean to them. They would be hearing this and you can almost guarantee they would have been brought to tears because this church is under severe persecution. Right? Not, not this America stuff that we call persecution, like severe, actual persecution, like being killed, being handed over to uh, the Colosseum to fight lions, like all the crazy things that were going on. And they would have wept because here God's telling them, listen, church, you've been measured and logged and counted and known and cherished and beloved, and you will be protected. You will be preserved. You will be kept by the power of God until salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. That should be a comfort to us today, right? Because if you're like me, I'm anxious about everything that's going on, right? I mean, the world's a mess. It's, it's been 20 years since 9-11. It ain't got any better. It just keeps getting worse. A lot of the things that we see happen are just a dress rehearsal for what's coming, guys. And so it makes me nervous, and I worry about what's going to happen. But listen, if you're in Christ, you've been measured. You've been accounted for. He hears you. He loves you. He sees the tears that fall, and he will preserve you till the end. So those days you don't think you can hold on, he says, oh, no, no, you can, because I've measured you. I've marked you. Hold on. I will preserve you till the end. And what it means there is when it says the, outer court, the inner court's protected while the outer's trampled. You know, some will say that the inner sanctuary is the church protected from God's wrath, uh, but, but is physically oppressed by pagan forces in the outer sanctuary. Uh, others say, and I, I'm kind of inclined to be this way, that the inner sanctuary are, are the believers, right? They've been marked, they've been accounted for, while the outer court is just the nominal believers, right? Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, right? That, that's them, right? They're in there, but they're not really in there. And I think it makes sense because if you see what's been happening in our culture the last seven years, several years, the, the pressure machine is on with Christianity, isn't it? I mean, it's squeezing them out. COVID squeezed a lot of us out, right? Just a great excuse to never go back to church. A great excuse to never be a part of the family of God again, right? Politics is squeezing a lot of people out because they're worshiping it more than they are Jesus. And it's getting in the way. And if a pastor says anything that, that might be anything along the lines of, uh, of racial justice or anything, oh, he's woke, oh, can't go to his church, oh, and then they leave and they get mad. It's squeezing them out, right? Every day we've got a new Christian celebrity doing this deconstruction junk, right? Where it's like, oh, everything I told me was wrong and it was all a lie and what if Jesus didn't mean this and what if Jesus didn't mean this about gender roles, you know, all these things. And as the persecution increases and it will, we will see who's marked and who's only nominal. We'll see who's in the temple. We'll see who's in the outer court. And there's these two witnesses, and we're gonna talk about their identity in a moment, but, but listen, there's two because that's the legal requirement for valid testimony in the Bible, okay? John's a Bible man. Numbers 33, Deuteronomy 17 and 19. This is laid out in the law. Jesus used the exact same principle, Matthew 18, 16. But if he does not listen Take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Luke 10, when Jesus sends out the 72, how's he send them out? Two by two. 
Paul did the same thing. 2 Corinthians 13, 1. This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. There were two witnesses on the Mount of Transfiguration to say, yes, this is the Son of God. Two angels testified to the resurrection that Jesus would return in Luke chapter 24 and in Acts chapter 1, right? That's what it's there for. It's to, it's to present a valid testimony. Now, we could go down a rabbit hole on the time presented as 42 months, 1,260 days, but we won't. 42 months equals 1,260 days. It equals three and a half years. The book of Daniel would put it this way, a time, times, and a half time. And I tend to agree with Sam Storms who says it's not a quantity of time that's being measured here, but the quality of time, right? So, so it's referring to a moment of intense persecution that will come for the church. 42 symbolic to describe suffering or trial. In Numbers 33, there were 42 encampments in Israel's journey through the wilderness. Israel was in the wilderness two years before God punished them with an additional 40 years, bringing the total to 42. In Luke 4.25, Jesus says that during Elijah's ministry, it didn't rain for 42 months. Daniel's told that the end will come after 42 months or three and a half years. Next week, Revelation chapter 12, verses five and six, she gave birth to a male child who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days, 42 months. So what's taking place is John being told that three and a half years or 42 months is just symbolic for the whole period of time between Jesus' ascension and his return. That the church will be under persecution. And folks, the church has always been under attack. Again, we're spoiled rotten here in America. The church has always been under attack. But although we are under attack, under attack God has measured, he's marked us, we'll be kept safe. So it should strengthen us and encourage us that, listen, we don't cower in fear. We proclaim the gospel boldly because that's what the two witnesses do, don't they? They prophesy. Look at, look at verse four. So these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power of the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that, is, that, is, that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and Nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. All right? So a lot of ink has been spilled over this. Who are the two witnesses? Some say it's Zerubbabel and Joshua. Others say it's Moses and Elijah. If you want to do a Google search for giggles, I encourage you to. Right? Some say the two witnesses are here and now. Right? Um, there's some that say they are the two witnesses. Um, I read one guy called Max the Axe. That was his name. And the two witnesses are the ones causing the pandemic right now, right? I mean, there's all kinds of fun stuff if you want to do that, right? And we could never get to the bottom of this, but let me just try to tell you what I think they're talking about. First, he references two olive trees and two lampstands. Remember, John's a Bible guy. In the background is Zechariah chapter four. In Zechariah chapter four, the children of Israel have come home from exile. Their temple is broken, it's busted up, and they're rebuilding. 
And Zechariah is sent to encourage the children of Israel by portraying their leaders, Zerubbabel and Joshua, like olive trees whose constant supply of oil keeps the lampstand burning in God's presence, all right? So the lampstand is a metaphor for the people of God. What happened to the book in the beginning of Revelation? Jesus is walking among the what? Lampstands, remember? The lampstands we said represent his church. Lampstands are the image of the church, and John adjusts Zechariah's vision. So the two olive trees and the two lamps are the same thing. The two witnesses are the two olive trees and the two lampstands. So the two witnesses, here we go, are the church, sustained and supplied by the Holy Spirit to shine the light of Christ into a dark world. Simply put, you and I, as the body of Christ, we are the two witnesses. All Christians collectively bear witness to the gospel and the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's our calling. That's our mission during this age as we await the return of the Lord. Then we see the weapons that they've been given, okay? And they're not machine guns, okay? People do believe that this is Elijah and Moses with machine guns. These are not machine guns. The weapons we've been given to push back the darkness are this, Right? John's a Bible man. He's drawing images these believers would have known. Our weapons are first and foremost the proclamation of the gospel. That's our first weapon. So if anyone harms them, fire will come from their mouths. It's an allusion to 2 Kings chapter 1, verses 10 through 14. The prophet Elijah called down fire on the soldiers sent to arrest him. So when the church witnesses faithfully, God's word has power over its enemies. Jeremiah chapter five, verse 14. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, because you've spoken this word, behold, I'm making my words in your mouth a fire and this people would and the fire shall consume them. So what he's saying is that we should not fear to declare God's word faithfully, that God will protect those who stand for truth. Ken Hughes says the Lord's witnesses may be hated and ill-treated and even done to death, but they cannot be harmed, though they appear to be overcome by enemies, yet it is they who are overcomers. Church is in the midst of severe persecution, and John's saying, hey man, you got a job to do, boldly proclaim the gospel. Don't cower in fear, don't back down, don't be afraid, don't shrink away, don't get scared when, 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 when what we have to say comes into conflict with worldly practices especially Christians as our world continues to turn further and further and further away from Jesus Christ. And he says, listen, even if you are killed for your faith, you know where you're headed to be with Jesus, so don't be scared. You are to faithfully proclaim the gospel. But, but the second weapon he says we have is the weapon of prayer. In 1 Kings 17, Elijah prayed, and it didn't rain for three and a half years. Moses turned the waters into blood in Exodus 7. Folks, listen, the modern church isn't equipped with less power than they had in the Old and New Testament, right? Baptist, hello? Okay? The same power that these early church prophets had is the same power available to you and I through the Holy Spirit. James 5, 16 through 17, therefore confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. The power of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. So Revelation 11 shows us the power of the witnessing church, that through the word of God, the proclamation of the gospel, and through the power of prayer, we are fueled, we are enabled to declare God's truth, and his word will prevail over evil and deliver sinners from judgment, all right? That's what the two witnesses do. 
James Hamilton puts it this way, and I think we need to hear this. He says, this is what makes the church so potent. Not money, not political influence, not marketing gimmicks, not anything that involves worldly strategy. The church's power is in spirit-empowered, father-protected proclamation of Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's our job as a church. And it has been our job since Jesus went back to heaven to boldly proclaim the gospel, to pray and believe that people will be saved. And then we continue to do it no matter what comes our way, no matter what opposition we get, we don't back down, we keep going. Knowing that our greatest weapon is the proclamation of the gospel in prayer. And then suddenly we're introduced to this new character, right? We're introduced to, to, to this beast in chapter, or verse seven. Now I want you to know this character doesn't just rise up from the pits of hell like, oh, all of a sudden there he is. No, he's been persecuting God's church from the beginning. He's gonna continue to persecute God's church until Jesus returns. We'll read more about him in Revelation 13. But it says that he's gonna make war on the church and that they're gonna appear to be conquered and killed and that their bodies will lay on the street of the great city. That is symbolically, okay? Notice John even puts that in there. Symbolically, Sodom and Egypt and then an allusion, a reference to Jerusalem. So Sodom represents the sensuality of the world. Egypt represents the tyrannical persecution of the church. And Jerusalem represents the rejection of Jesus as Messiah. So taken as a whole, what this means is that all of human society living in rebellion and um, in depravity and opposition to Jesus Christ. So what he means is that for a period of time, those who dwell on earth, just a reference to non-believers, they'll rejoice over the apparent demise of the church. In our day and age, are there not segments of this world that would rejoice if the church wasn't around anymore? You better believe it. Don't act like they're not coming for you, Texas. I mean, it's your fault that we have passed this abortion law, isn't it? I mean, that's all on you Christians. If you hadn't been pushing for it for all these years, it never would have happened. And they're angry. They are mad. There are segments of this society that would love to see the church go away. They would rejoice over that. And that's what John's saying here, is that there's gonna be a period of a persecution that's just gonna keep getting worse, and it's gonna get to the point where it looks like the church has been snuffed out, that it's been killed, that it's been defeated, and the world's gonna rejoice over that. But then look what happens in verse 11. I love this. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. They stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come on up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. So after three and a half days, life is breathed back into the two witnesses and they rise from the dead. Folks, listen, you can't kill God's church. That's what it means. You can't kill his church. I want you to think about the expulsion of missionaries uh, from China when communism took over. Right? You remember in the 60s, Madame Mao said that Christianity was dead in this country. So decades go by, finally some restrictions are let up, and we're able to sneak some missionaries back in there. And the missionaries were scared to death. They thought, man, we're going to go in there, and that church is going to be dead. There's not going to be anything there. And they were in awe, because guess what? The church was stronger than it was before communism came in. Right now, you want to know the fastest growing place for Christianity? Iran. Iran. 
right? You could be killed if they find out you're a Christian and they cannot contain the growth of the church in Iran. All the reports we keep getting out of Afghanistan is guess what, even though the Taliban's in charge, guess what, church keeps growing. It hasn't stopped growing, right? We're not scared of them. We're still meeting. We're still proclaiming the gospel. You can't kill God's church, folks. The witness of the church will at times appear to be snuffed out. At times, its servants will be martyred or silenced, but in the end, it cannot be destroyed. It can't. I love that. And at the end of the gospel age, after a period of intense persecution, the church will complete its mission. And look what happens right there in verse 12. Look what happens. There's your rapture, right? There's your rapture. Then I heard a loud voice saying from heaven, come on up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them, right? God preserved them. God protected them. Some may have lost their lives, but guess what? He's coming back with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel. We're going up to heaven. We're gonna be with him, right? We get to say, see you guys later, have fun, right? William Hendrickson says, the church, still under the symbolism of the two witnesses, now hears a voice, come up hither. Thereupon the church ascends to heaven in a cloud of glory and their enemies beheld them. And he says this, this is no secret rapture. And then the final judgment begins. The city falls. People are killed in an earthquake. The rest are terrified. They fall down. This is where they, through gritted teeth, confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And what's being described here for you and I is the mission of the church from 30 AD until the return of Christ. And what are we called to do? We're called to bear witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ till kingdom come. That's your job. That's my job. And we do this knowing that we're empowered by the Holy Spirit of Christ and that we will subdue and conquer all of God's enemies and he will give us life even when the beast for a short period seems to triumph. And then the final trumpet blasts and the scene shifts back to heaven. Look at verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on, the, on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you've taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints and those who fear your name, both small and great and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within the temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumbles, peals of thunder, an earthquake and heavy hail. We covered this in an earlier summer, but essentially we get to go to heaven, we get to gather around the throne and we get to worship Jesus. We get to praise him forever and ever and ever. And there's this woe that's marked on the unbelieving world, right? It's a woe for those who did not trust in him. It's a woe for those who don't know Jesus. It's a woe saying, hey, depart from me. I never knew you. But those of us who have been saved and marked off by the blood of Jesus Christ, it will be a day of great rejoicing. It'll be a great day of great triumph when we finally see Jesus face to face. So when the final trumpet sounds, tired, weary, worn out Christians, you can finally say at last, no more come Lord Jesus, right? Sit around and watch 9-11 stuff with Ellie all day yesterday. She was just so like into it. And you just can't help but watch that 20 years later and go, come Lord Jesus. See the state things are in now and say, just come Lord Jesus, come on, come on. And when that last trumpet sounds, we get to say at last, no more come Lord Jesus.
I know for me it'll mean the end of my long, sore combat with sin. It means the end of a fight with inner demons that I wrestle with every day. It means an end to the disease and the suffering and the mess that's just ravaged my family. It means that I get to see the finish line and look, I'm slow. I finally get to win a race for the first time in my life. I cannot wait. At long last,